from the lower mainland that's the same area that i work in and uh, we're going to be talking about uh, mental health this gentleman was deployed twice to afghanistan he actually his trade as a plumber became a firefighter i want to plug my favorite nonprofit heads up guys if you're looking for ways to find out more about coping with anxiety sadness skills that might help you feel better about your day please check up headsupguys.org well, Andrew, how are you doing today? I'm doing very good. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me. You served in uh, the armed forces and you did two deployments in Afghanistan. That's right. I uh, joined at 16 years old in 2001, just before 9-11 and uh, served twice in Kandahar, Afghanistan. What was that like? Uh, it was the highlight of my life, to be honest. Uh, you're young, you're looking for adrenaline and excitement. You're looking to serve and to, to kind of prove yourself. I think everyone at that age is. Um, and I was in the military before I deployed for about five years, six years. And you're kind of at that point where you really want to go overseas. Everyone wants a tour. Um, and Afghanistan is just unbelievable. You're going into a country that's like coming right out of the Bible. When you talk about landscape and um, culture and, and, and just how people live, it's, you know, people are in mud huts with no roofs. Um, the culture shock is real. I've only visited like two other countries before I went over. Um, and then just the caliber of people you get to work with is just phenomenal. You're working with the best Canadians uh, in the country, like just the level of uh, skill set they have and determination and working together. I, I have yet to find that same caliber uh, since then. I've come close to so the fire service is definitely uh, very similar to that. And that's why I think I was naturally led into that. Um, but it's, it's a very unique group of individuals that come together and work as a team. <laughs> What's your uh, most memorable moment about being there on the first deployment? Uh, first deployment was a little bit more of a mundane tour. It was reconstruction in Kandahar. Uh, we needed to build a new hospital, um, headquarters buildings, stuff like that. But I was just so amped to get over. I'd been volunteering, putting my name to go over for at least, well, pretty much from day one. Uh, first, it was Bosnia I was trying to get over on. Um, that fell through. And then finally, I got a tour to Afghanistan. So I was like, sure, I'll take it. Um, it was, it was unique. I was 21 years old and, uh, I didn't have a girlfriend. I was living on my own, working as an apprentice plumber. And I actually had to write my own will and give it to my mom and discuss with her, you know, what I would like if, if, you know, something happened to me. Um, so it was, it was really surreal. It wasn't sad, but it was, that was like the most awkward conversation to have with your, your love, your mom or dad. Um, so I think that was the, the kind of strange part. And I didn't really believe I was there until like our first rocket attack. Um, so it was a, a really weird situation. Like I'm landing in Kandahar, uh, in November of 2006 and we land and it's overcast. It's like 10 degrees and it's drizzly. And I'm like, I'm in, I'm in Afghanistan. Like this is, this is like Vancouver. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was pretty unusual. Um, climate wise and, and getting everything in order because I was a, a last minute augmentee. Uh, I didn't go over with a group of people I knew I was by myself. So I was on this, you know, 12 hour plane ride to the middle East and, and I didn't know anyone. Um, so it was, it was exciting a little bit. Uh, I don't want to say scary, but I was definitely in that moment where you're like, okay, I don't know anyone. And I'm a 12,000 kilometers from home. <laughs> 
I know somebody that did go to Bosnia. Uh, he is also a firefighter. And he said, you know, they left Bosnia after being in a firefight for about three weeks. And the Americans came in and brought them out with uh, jets and tanks. And he said they left like on October 21st. And he said they got into Germany at the beginning of November. And he was with a battalion of about 200 people. And he said within that week of arriving in Germany, that 16 of his members had committed suicide wow. in one week. How did the military deal with PTSI, PTSD? Well, I mean, in Bosnia, they didn't do a very good job. We all know that. Apparently, they were better in Afghanistan at addressing it. They were. Um, the, uh, the one thing that sticks out to me is uh, a briefing. I can't remember if it was before or after my first tour, uh, but we had our captain come into the room. And, and usually captains don't do a lot of our briefings. It's usually for sergeants and, and warrant officers. Uh, so the captain walked into the room and he said, if I hear any snickering, laughing or jokes made in this briefing you'll be up on charges we have a serious thing to talk about it's about post-traumatic stress disorder and that was the first time i had really heard of it you might have heard like things here and there uh and he went through the whole briefing and everyone in the room was silent because they were terrified of getting getting charged but it, it really drove home the point how serious this was and and there was no pity party about it it was like hey this this happens to people and we got to respect it we've got to we got to see it because your buddy could die and he could die by his own hand. And that's, that's enemy action in a sense. The enemy has killed him from what he has saw overseas. So we're losing a Canadian soldier because of enemy action, essentially. And, and you do get a sacrifice medal uh, if, if your exposure or your, your suicide is uh, in relation to PTSD. So it is a, a war injury. So Andrew, you did two tours in Afghanistan. That's right. What was the second tour like? Uh, the second tour was honestly the most incredible experience of my life. The tasking came out. So every day you go into the military, they'll come out with the taskings for overseas deployments, courses, uh, and other things. And a tasking came out for a tour with Canada Special Forces. And what it was is they were running out of manpower to have defense and security for their patrol base in Kandahar. So they needed 10 reservists to fill these positions. And I went, wow, that's like a pretty surreal position. So I put my name in and uh, I made it through and I got to go overseas with uh, JTF2 and CSOR. It's uh, two of Canada's top uh, special forces regiments. Just an unreal experience uh, being able to work with them, the level of professionalism and skill set that they have uh, and, and the way they treated us. They treated us as equal and they wanted to take us on the range and show us how they fire uh, handguns, rifles and make sure that we're not, definitely not up to the same caliber as them, but as best as we could be. Definitely some unique experiences there. I had guns pointed at me on that tour. I had guns, uh, I pointed my weapon at a, a member, uh, an Afghan member uh, who appeared to be a threat. Probably one of the most impactful moments in my life, uh, looking down on the sights of my rifle and having my finger on a trigger and slowly squeezing until this guy no longer presented himself as a threat. At the time, it wasn't really all that stressful uh, because you're just, you're already at such a high level of stress, anticipating things that that's your normal. Uh, so it wasn't until I came home and I really kind of settled with the fact that I had almost killed someone um, that that does play on you. I don't care who you are. If someone's pointing a gun at you, that's a different situation. If someone's on a cell phone that could be activating an IED, that plays a lot of questions in your head. Do I, do I shoot this guy? And then turns out he's innocent. Do I shoot him and then find out I made the right call? Uh, do I wait too long? And he blows up an IED and kills my buddy or myself. So there was definitely a lot uh, in that tour that was different than my first one for, for experiences. 
that could change your DNA. That could change you how you think. And, and I'm sure it did. My second tour was a six month tour. Um, we had our leave at the end of the tour. Uh, so it was, it was really five months, but uh, we take our leave in, in the last section there. Uh, we, we had an intermediary uh, location that we stopped at to decompress because the military realized that you can't, you shouldn't take troops from a war zone, put them on a plane and 12 hours home there, uh, 12 hours later, they're home with their wives and family. So they sent us to uh, Ibiza, Spain, and uh, we did briefings in the mornings, uh, suicide prevention, uh, what to expect when you get home, knowing that you're no longer, you know, maybe number one at home because your wife's been taking care of everything while you've been gone. Um, a lot of stuff that didn't apply to me because I was single. And I do remember talking to a psychologist while I was there and she goes, you know, well, this experience with you almost, you know, killing someone, do you think that's going to play an effect? And how did that, you know, how do you feel? And I was like, I'm fine. Like, there's nothing wrong here. Like, you're almost making me feel like I should have PTSD. And, and it was kind of frustrating, but I, you know, I did the morning briefing and I took the afternoon off, went drinking and partied and explored the, the surroundings. Um, little did I know that a lot of that stuff would come back. Um, but the approach of a psychologist to tell a 25 year old, Hey, you might experience this kind of stuff. Well, you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> you're not really thinking, yeah, this, this could, and maybe I should get a psychologist when I go home, just in case you're not thinking that at all. Uh, no one is because unless you've experienced the effects of it, you're not going to believe it uh, until it happens. Then I, I did get home to Toronto. Uh, I took a month and a half leave, went on a vacation to New Zealand, Australia. Um, and my boss, I remember I, I went back to work as a plumber and uh, my boss was upset because I took military leave to go over. And his first words out of his mouth were, uh, so have you got that army shit out of your system yet? I know there was government legislation that we had to keep you, but we found a few loopholes and if we wanted to, we could fire you right now. Uh, so a very unwarm welcome coming home. That played a lot on my brain. Um, it, it sounds kind of small potatoes, but I was an apprentice in my fourth year. So it was one year away from my license and to lose your job at that point would be, you know, pretty crushing. Uh, so it put a lot of stress on me and it took me from a place of like extreme confidence where I, I was proficient in my job as a soldier. I just came away from the best experience of my life uh, professionally. And now you come home and you're like, you are a disappointment to us. You cost us money and we don't even really want you here. Um, so that, that played a big toll on me. And I don't think I appreciated it at the time of how much of an effect that had on me. I look back on it now and it was kind of the best thing that could have happened. Um, becoming a firefighter or going down that path to uh, become one uh, is extremely daunting when you look at the first steps. And, and the first time I had an inkling of becoming a firefighter was a friend of mine on my tour. Uh, we we're surfing the net on our, our downtime when we were over there. And uh, I said, hey, what are you looking up there? He said, oh, I want to be a firefighter. Just going through the processes here with a couple departments. I said, oh, that sounds really cool, actually. Like, what's the process like? So he pulled up Toronto Fire's uh, application process and it had like 13 steps to get hired. And I was like, fuck that, that is just, that's insane. That's, you know, I don't mind putting time in for college, but like 13 steps and, and there's like 2000 people applying and there's 20 spots, like that's insane. And it just kept, you know, poking at me. And I was like, you know what? Like if it was easy, everyone would do it. And I did, you know, uh, first aid courses and air brakes and all those other courses and I said, Now's the time to really say, is this something I'm going to commit to for the next five to eight years of applying and potentially not get in? Or am I going to pull out now and, and you know, leave my chips where they be? Um, I had to move to uh, the lower mainland uh, from Toronto in 2011. 
and that was a huge change as well. Uh, I'm not the type of person to kind of uproot and move. And uh, when I did that, I was like, well, I might as well move to where I want to work instead of where some firefighter candidates move halfway across the country. And I was so fortunate that after four years of hard work applications, taking courses, uh, I was hired in a lower mainland department. I'll date myself here, but in 1983, I applied for the biggest fire department, which was Vancouver. In 83, there was two jobs posted and there, the pay, newspaper said there was over 5,200 applicants. What was I, 19? And I never got the job. I was devastated. But, you know, seven years, 13 different departments. I mean, I help a lot of kids go through the process with the resume and, you know, interview skills. And I tell them, just don't give up. You'll get hired. Just keep going. You'll get hired. Chin up. You'll get hired. And it's true. It's a lot of work. It's keep, you keep taking courses, you keep getting better at interviews and you'll get hired. Uh, it's a long process. It's hard. It looks daunting, but um, I do believe it's the best job in the world. I mean, you get to help someone when they're having their worst day. And I think uh, there are not many careers out there that you can do that. So, I mean, you landed on your feet, man. You, uh, you definitely got one of the best jobs in the world, I believe. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So you now are a firefighter in the lower mainland and life is great. Life is good um, because although all the appearances on the outside are, are that I have everything I could want, um, you know, you're still a probationer. You're going through all those stresses now. Whole, you, know, you got your dream job, but guess what? Now you're, you're at the bottom peg and, and you got all those stresses. Uh, I was also dealing with a lot of depression, anxiety, um, just a lot of kind of being down on myself um, feelings. And, and part of that's from the recruitment process. I'm not going to lie. You're stressed out about getting everything in perfectly because if you don't, you make one mistake, they throw your file out and you got to wait an entire year to apply again. But I think a lot of it did have to do with my tourist. Um, definitely going from the highlight of my life, like being at the, the pinnacle of my, my soldiering career, uh, to being ripped down from uh, from there from my plumbing boss and basically saying you know like yeah whatever that that definitely played an effect on my my ego it's definitely something that takes its toll on you because uh, you believe you've done a good job and, and you're at the height of of your professional career and uh, and here's another person that who's your boss basically saying yeah that, that none of that matters um, so yeah I was dealing with some struggles uh, at that stage uh, when I was hired. Um, but yeah, I was happy and I thought everything was good. But in 2016, uh, with some assistance from a friend, he goes, you know what? It wouldn't hurt if you contacted Veterans Affairs and just got a counselor, just to, just to run this stuff through them and see if there's anything going on there. See if they see, you know, depression, anxiety is attributable to your service. Let's see if this is something else and let's see if there's something that can help it. Uh, little did I know I'd have the worst call of my life about six to eight months later. And if she wasn't in place at that time, things would have been very, very different. Just before the worst call of my life, I had actually started thinking, you know what? Counseling was great. I've worked through it. You know, I, I probably saw her twice a month, learned a lot. This is great. I'm done. I can move on now. I, I think it's a very typical thing. People my age, men and women, but I think especially men, we like to think we could fix ourselves. And I was done. I'm good. I'm perfect. Leading up to that, I had my first hanging call at work. Uh, it was a young girl. It was first call of the day. I don't even, we didn't have even finished our coffees in the morning. And uh, it was a, a Chinese lady at the door that greeted us. And she didn't speak any English, but she was sobbing. And uh, we, we kind of put one and one together. And we went, okay, well, there's someone inside. Let's, let's go find her. So the captain uh, said, okay, you guys split up and, and see who can find her, right? So I, I walk into the, the bathroom and I find her and she's... Uh, she's hanging there 
they said she was 13. Uh, we, we got information later that she was a, a bit older than that. You know, you don't pay a lot of attention when you're looking at someone in that position. Uh, I thought she was 13 uh, when I walked in. And it was quiet. Like, I remember walking in, it's silent. And I, I yell out to the cop, hey, I found her. And he made sure that he didn't enter the room. And he just said, does she have a pulse? And I said, no. He goes, okay, just check again. And is, is there anything we can do? I said, no, there, there's nothing we can do. And then I walked out and it was, you know, the paramedics came in and said, Hey, no one go in that room that doesn't need to be in that room. And they're, they're doing things that were good to protect people from seeing stuff that they, they don't need to see, but that kind of messed me up a bit. Cause it's like, whatever you do, guys don't go into this room, but Andrew, uh, yeah, you were in that room. That's all good. Okay. Let's hop in the truck and go back to the hall. And it was fine. I, I, I felt kind of odd about it. Um, it was my first hanging call, but uh, I felt, pretty good the rest of the day overall it was kind of an uneasy feeling because it just felt too too nonchalant I think but that's kind of how we treat our calls about a week later I was uh in bed it was like two in the morning one one thirty two in the morning and my phone lights up I was like oh okay I must have got a, a text or a message from a friend overseas because of the time difference or something and then it lights up again and then it lights up again 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 I was like whoa what the heck is going on here so I pick up my phone and um, a friend of mine at my plumbing company that I used to work for had hung himself. I didn't know how to really take it. It was, you know, one thirty in the morning, I'm exhausted. I think I had to go to work the next day. Um, so I kind of just turned the phone off and uh, went back to bed and woke up and, and I moved on. Um, worked a bunch of overtime shifts. My sleep was out of whack. Um, and I'm sure you'll you'll ping on this right away that sleep is so important. So I'm not getting enough sleep. I'm still drinking at that time. I just dealt with two hanging calls. I'm getting married at the end of the, the following month. Um, lots of stresses going on in different areas of my life. My fiance at the time, now my wife, uh, was going to a bachelorette party uh, in the interior uh, for the weekend. And uh, I was home alone. I went downtown uh, to, to have a little uh, party or not a party just to meet up with my friends before I, I got married it wasn't anything crazy it was just a kind of a pub meet up uh got home probably around 11 o'clock 12 o'clock and uh sitting having a beer watching tv everything's fine and I'm not kidding Steve the next moment I remember is I'm holding a knife to my arm and I'm starting to cut my arm and I've never done this in my entire life never thought of it and my eyes just go bug-eyed and the first thing I do is I text my wife, which is bizarre because looking, thinking back on it now, that's like the last person I'd want to tell about this. And I think it was my body just like, what is happening here? Like, what is going on? And I texted her and I'm like, I don't know what the fuck is wrong with me. And uh, my wife's an incredible woman. She immediately started getting the ball rolling. She called friends that lived in the neighborhood. Uh, one is an army buddy of mine. And one is uh, now a firefighter, but at the time, I don't think he was, um, to get them over to my house. Um, she called the police for a wellness check, and uh, I went back to sleep. I was exhausted. Uh, woken up probably about an hour later with a loud banging at my door, like someone was about to kick it in. I get up, I go to the door, and it's it's the police. Hey, how, uh, hey guys. Oh, I think I know why you're here. They're like, yeah, can we come in? I said, absolutely. I said, hey. I had a really bad call at work. Uh, a friend of mine's, you know, hung himself. I'm, I'm dealing with some crap, uh, but I'm okay now. Like, a, there's, there's a knife in the kitchen for your safety. Mine, there's nothing else in here. I don't own any weapons. 
um, I'm, you know, like I'm a veteran, I'm a firefighter, like I'm, I'm on your side, like nothing to worry about. And they said, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, go ahead and put your hands behind your back. And my eyes just lit up. I said, sorry, what? So put your hands behind your back. I said, why? Well, for your safety and ours, uh, you're coming to the hospital with us. And I said, okay, well, I understand that part, but like, why do you need to have my, like, why do you need to arrest me? Like, can we, can we do this outside? Because no, we're not negotiating here. You'll put your hands behind your hat back or we'll do it for you. And I was, that's when I completely broke down. Um, to be placed in handcuffs in your own house, that was probably, that was the most, that was the worst moment of my life. Sure, I've had other things happen that were more painful, um, maybe more emotionally draining, um, like a, a death of a family member. But when it comes to something that's just about you, that was the lowest of the low. It was, you've harmed yourself and we consider you a threat when we're going to treat you like a criminal. So we're in the waiting room, um, waiting for uh, a psychologist or a um, psychiatrist and uh, the police find out they're not going to be there till seven in the morning. And I'd been there two and a half hours at this point, still in handcuffs and I'm losing circulation in my wrists and uh, they didn't double lock the cuffs. And I said, guys, can you please loosen these? Like, I'm not a threat. I've been calm the whole time. I've been cooperative. They were finishing up their shift and they said, Andrew, you know, we got to go. We got to leave you here. Who do you want us to call? And I said, uh, well, you rushed me out of my house so quickly. I don't have my cell phone and I don't know anyone in the lower mainland. I have a couple of my friends, but I don't have their phone numbers. He goes, well, we got to call someone. We can't just leave you here. And I said, okay, well, call my battalion chief. And he goes, what? I said, call my battalion chief at the fire department. Um, they're on duty. Like, this is what they do. They take care of their members. He goes, you want to destroy your career over this? Like, you sure you know what you're doing? And I remember what I said. I said, I don't know about your guys' department, but our department looks after our members. And I have confidence that they're going to take care of me in this situation. And they did. They, uh, they handed me the phone and, and it, was, it was one of the hardest phone calls I had to, to, to make. The battalion chief picks up the phone and, and I knew him and not very well, but he goes, Andrew, uh, what's going on? Super happy voice, like just upbeat. It's 2.30 in the morning. Who wants to take a phone call, you know, 2.33 in the morning? And I broke up and I basically said, I need help. I'm, I'm in, uh, in the hospital and uh, I don't know who else to call. He says, we'll have uh, our on-duty chief come out and get you. Um, you just stay tight. And, and I did. Police left. And uh, they, he showed up and uh, convinced the doctor that he would take me home and, and make sure that I was safe. And uh, that's when the ball started rolling the other way. And I started getting help. And it all started from the department level went home, slept the next few hours off. My wife texted me, said that she was on a flight home. Uh, she got, she found a flight from the interior to get there as soon as possible. And about 45 minutes before she got home, I got a call from her mental health coordinator um, at work. And he said, Andrew, you know, you've, you've been through a hell of a lot this last 12 hours. Your wife's coming home. She has no idea what to expect. She doesn't know what's happening. Would you like me to be there? And I said, you know what? I think that would be a really good idea. And uh, he showed up, I think, shortly, either shortly after my wife got home or right before. And we sat down at our living room table where, you know, a few short hours ago before that, I'd been handcuffed. He was so awesome at what he did. He said, you know, this is, this is a normal reaction to an unnormal situation. We got lots of resources in place. We're going to use them. Um, but the first thing we got to do is take care of the two of you and make sure that your wedding 
is going to be successful next month. We've got to focus on you guys. And the best way we can do that is start off with a meal. So let's go out for breakfast and talk about this. So he took us into a different environment where it's casual. We're eating, we're talking. He goes, okay, uh, I know you don't want to do this, but you got to go to hospital this morning. Just get checked out. Make sure you're good to go. Maybe they'll give you some meds to get over some of the anxiety and, and stuff you're going through right now. Um, and then we'll go uh, talk about this further on Monday when you get back to work. I said, okay, sounds good. So did the hospital thing, got some anti-anxiety pills, which basically knock you out. Um, so they're not very good, but they were for the situation. And uh, when I got to work, it was 100% support. I was placed on late duties. No one knew about what happened. I could have had a you know, physical injury. No one, no one knows exactly what happened. They just know that I'm on late duties. And uh, we come to an agreement. He goes, you're getting married in two and a half weeks, three weeks. Uh, we're going to keep you on late duties for that time. There's no sense in putting you back in the fire hall at this time when we still don't know what the heck's going on with you. He goes, I know you're a good firefighter. I know you'll do a good job, but why put you into that position until we can sort this out? I said, fair enough, that sounds great. The next two to three weeks, believe it or not, we're good. You would think with such a life-changing event that you would be in depression, anxiety, and all that would get even worse. It wasn't because of the support mechanisms I had in place. My wife wasn't saying, what the hell were you thinking? She wasn't judging me. Um, work wasn't judging me. It was all positivity. And uh, shortly after we, we got married, uh, had our honeymoon, and they had placed me into a retreat uh, program. Uh, the department did. At the time, the program was very frustrating for me uh, because I felt like I needed to scream out what I was dealing with. Every single person there from, from a person even junior to me, and I was fairly junior at the time, uh, to a retired member had a story that brought them to tears and had something you, you looked at some of these guys and you're like oh that's a big tough like motorcycle dude like who's a firefighter like this guy's got nothing like why is he even here he's probably like he's probably pissed that he's here his department's really sent him here that guy had the hardest story we had to listen to that weekend and we were pretty much all in tears over it um, and just in disbelief uh, and it was just like wow like we, we all, every single person on the planet has a story like that. And we, we walk around thinking that everyone else's life is perfect or near perfect. And we're the ones that are messed up. Uh, and that's the biggest thing I took away from that. Uh, the, the other biggest thing in retrospect, I took away was I had no emotions. I had no, I didn't cry. I was the only person there that didn't cry. And I said that in my, my final parting statement, when I left, I said, I'm the only person here that didn't cry. And that's my problem. My problem is I'm not feeling any emotion. It's all numbness. Um, so that was pretty moving for me to, to kind of acknowledge that. And, and since then, um, I'm also uh, in my department's honor guard and I, I go to a lot of funerals. And recently I'd seen the last year, I'd begin to tear up or, or cry at a funeral when a daughter's speaking about her dad. And that part of me smiles. It's like, that's the appropriate reaction to this scenario. That, that's good. That's my body telling me, hey, this is sad and that's okay. <laughs> Um, but I did see the benefits from the program and looking back on it, it is like, I couldn't recommend that more for a member of the fire service. It would be great if we could afford to have every member go through it at the beginning of their career. Um, I don't think it's viable, but it's, it's a fantastic program to have in place for situations like mine. You're talking about a program that I have also been through. Um, it's a program that was run by Dr. Duncan Shields and Dr. David Cool, now known as Blueprint. Uh, it was hosted by the British Columbia Professional Firefighters Association. Uh, that program 
in his infancy, which you went through at the very beginning, definitely turned out to be uh, an amazing program. I went through it after about 80 firefighters had been through it. And I was there with a bunch of chiefs and I was there actually with the chief of your fire department. You know, we all sat around thinking it was something that we were just checking off. We all got challenged with little, maybe you did at that same time, or maybe they changed it, but we all got a challenge and it was to write your story from when you were a little kid to when you became a firefighter. And what's interesting about that is I already written that story. I had it sitting in my closet. It was, you know, 130 pages of handwritten notes about my childhood that I did in clinical counseling, like over 10 years ago. I never told anybody that that story, but I ended up leaving that program, having a good friend of mine who took his life, inspire me to talk about it and write a book. And that that program gave me the confidence, gave me the encouragement, but also answered a lot of my own questions. And I think that's what it needed to do. When you started there, it might not have been ready for you because you touched on something that I don't think many members will know. What's interesting at the management level, um, those battalion chiefs and assistant chiefs that get those phone calls in the middle of the night, uh, who's ever phoning them, and it's usually a friend. I have a firefighter in trouble. We don't know what to do. They make that phone call to that battalion chief or that assistant chief, and they know what to do. And, you know, people don't understand this part of the fire service, but it is collaborative from the very top, the fire chief, right down to the mental health coordinator, or you have to react immediately. You have to know, you have to do something. There are so many times that you're involved in a crisis intervention with a firefighter, and it is a situation where that firefighter is about to take their own life. And usually it's getting them in a car and moving them and getting them to a hospital and getting them to a psych ward so they can be assessed and then not leaving their side. And one of the key elements that you touched on that the fire service doesn't get to talk about this because there's a privacy and thing. You just open that up a little bit. So I'm going to just say something here that most firefighters might not know. Good fire chiefs, they blend those lines between membership and management when it comes to mental health. There's no questions that can't be answered. There's no resources that can't be used. When a member, and it's usually someone from the executive who phones and says, we have a member in trouble and we go, what can we do to help? That's the way it works. And it usually involves a family. How's the family? When I started, man, you didn't tell a family anything because half the guys were boozing. Some people were doing drugs. Like there were so many moving parts to people's problems. You didn't expose the family members because you know what? You didn't want them to know what really the culture looked like. It was a a nasty beast. And you just wanted to fix the problems and get those people back at work. And I want to say something else. I believe this wholeheartedly in my position, but also what I know about the fire service is the best place for someone to recover is at work. And it might be alternate duties. And especially if you can protect that person's privacy, if you can provide a safe place for that person to recover, it's way better than them being at home on an SSRI in their sweatpants, watching Netflix, being engaged with firefighters and seeing, I want to get back on the floor. I want to get back on the truck. I want to, they're going to see that, but at home, you're keeping the depression alive in a lot of cases. You know what? The military does the same. They'll move people to Germany from the Middle East and treat them and try and get them back. But if they move them back to Canada or the United States, chances of them coming back with a mental health injury, not likely. I think that's that was the point of that men's health initiative is, well, we had a female chief 
in there as well. So it was a men's health initiative, but we had a female fire chief in there. And the fire service is, it's the most amazing culture. It's beautiful and brutal. It's most helpful, supportive, most unfair system that exists. Going through some of the things you go through as a recruit, maybe aren't necessary, but they're traditional. So they'll stay. People always hear me say, there's two things the fire department hates, the way things are and change. I recently had a police officer reach out to me about something I wrote in a book and said, you, you don't understand. I have suicidal thoughts and I can't talk to anybody. I said, yes, you can. You can go to a psychologist or clinical counselor and talk to somebody. Police officer said, but it's not like I can go to my CO and say, hey, I'm having suicidal thoughts because instantly I will be put on a desk job where there'll be worse than death for me. I can manage going to work when I'm out in the car. I do not want to be at a desk job. That is never going away in the police service. You have that happening. And so you have to accept that. And that's a tough thing for people to accept. In policing and fire, being a paramedic, general public will say, we well, can't let that happen. Well, you don't understand the culture. It's, it's a big machine and everybody's working to fix it. I think we just got to keep doing what we're doing right here. I was just going to say, that's why I'm here. Um, I'm sure there's going to be people who recognize who I am and uh, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm happy about that. I, I tell people at work my story. I'm not afraid of it because my life has improved so greatly since that event. And even prior to that, I've never been happier in my life. Like, I don't care what you think about me talking about mental health. I'm not slagging the department. I'm not slagging people. I'm saying, this is my story and this is how I've changed. I went from the lowest low to my highest high in a matter of three to four years. That's incredible. That is unbelievable. I, I didn't believe that I could feel this good before that event happened. So after that event happened, I was like, I just hope I can go back to being depressed and drinking all day, <laughs> um, which, which kind of leads me into what you're, you're talking about was all these different techniques and therapies that are available. It's sometimes really hard to hear some of them. And you're like, yeah, that's a load of crock. But if you honestly give them what a chance, you're going to find ones that work for you. You're going to like, for me, I hate grounding techniques. I find them just, I get bored. I get fidgety. I, I can't sit in one place. And I think a lot of firemen are like that. We firefighters, I should say, uh, we, we just, we can't just sit there and calm down. And, and it's a great technique for us because that's what we need to do. But for me, that doesn't work. So I, I don't have that in my toolbox, but I have something else in place of it. Finding those techniques and using them. Once you start using them, like, like you talk about the breathing techniques, Steve, you, you start doing them without even noticing you're doing them. Um, when I'm driving and there was uh, you know, traffic jam or something that would normally get me really irate, I'd notice I was doing the tactical breathing. I'm like, holy crap, like this is awesome. It's it's working. So it it's it's amazing that there's all these tools out there and we just need to let people know how to use them. Um, I did want to touch on a couple of things that really helped me. Uh, I went through the veterans transition program and it's a program for veterans, uh, either who've left the forces or or are still in but dealing with issues. And I went to that the following year or a year and a half after Loon Lake. And I, I could immediately see the changes because the people that were there were going through what I was going through when I was at Loon Lake and I was already in a better place. And I was able to really see where I was at during that time. Um, so that was extremely beneficial. Some of the stories there were incredible. We had one veteran with 50, you know, he served 50 years ago in, uh, sorry, in Egypt. And he had a story he'd never told his family and it was heartbreaking. And by the end of those three weekends that we were there, he had let it go. He let the trauma go and he was a new person. It was unbelievable. The guy's in his eighties and he's like, I wish we had this back when I was in. And uh, 
So I learned more there. And then finally, when my mental health had reached a point where I felt good, I was actually able to deal with my um, substance abuse to alcohol, uh, which had started when I was 16 in the military. Like that's, that's half my life of drinking. Um, not to the point all the time where I was, you know, a drunken idiot. Um, it was a lot of functional alcoholic uh, behavior. And I, with COVID hitting, I, my drinking was increasing, increasing. Uh, I did have it down before COVID to a, an acceptable level. And then it just shot right back up. Um, and I said, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to lose my marriage. I'm going to possibly lose my job, my license, my life. I could hurt someone. Like there's so many things here that it, it's scary. Like this is, I could see it snowballing. So I contacted Veterans Affairs and I said, I need inpatient help now. Immediately got the help I needed. I was placed in a program. I told them, I said, here's the program I want. Here's the dates. They have an opening. What more do you need from me? I'll get it to you. And uh, they loaded me on the program. I was extremely motivated to go. And it was a, it, it was kind of an uh, open end date, uh, but I anticipated a two month stay. And there had been another firefighter coincidentally, who was in the honor guard of another department uh, who was kind of um, not a spokesperson, but they did an article on him. Um, and I chatted to him before I went and the similarities that we had, like we're doing the same job. We're going to have similar behaviors. Um, he was ex-military as well. Like it was just the same thing, but a different person, you know, different stories, different traumas, but at the same time, the same symptoms, the same behaviors. Uh, so went through the program and never had the urge to drink after it's been, uh, it's coming up to a year now. Uh, I don't know what the future holds for my drinking. Uh, I'm giving it at least another year. And I would like to be able to enjoy a pint on a, a patio on a day like today. <laughs> um, but if I can't, so be it. Because I've seen in the last year how my life's improved, my clarity, uh, and that affects your mental health. So my mental health is so much better because of not drinking, as much as it pains me to say that, because I think we can all agree having a few beers is, is a great feeling too. So having that I'm at the best stage of my life. I, I was on medication, um, antidepressant. Um, I've cut that in half now. And the thing with medications is everyone goes, oh, I don't want to be on a med. That's, that, uh, that's too much. That's, that means I have an issue. Well, if you were to go up to someone that was uh, diabetic and said, hey, you got to stop taking that insulin. That's a medication. That, it's, that's weird. You shouldn't be doing that. We would think that was crazy. So my psychologist said, Andrew, you just got something. Your brain's not producing enough of this chemical. And that chemical is there to make sure that things are in balance. So you need this medication. And if you don't take it, you're just going to feel crummy. But the, the idea is, is that you build up your mental health and resiliency to the point that you don't need the medication later. Maybe you do, maybe you need it the rest of your life. And if I do, fine, that's, that's great. I don't get a high off this medication. I just feel level. I feel normal. I still get my highs and lows, but I'm not starting at a high anger, anxiety level at the beginning of a day, I'm starting at a baseline and, and I've already reduced my medication in half. So I, I just see that going down to, to nothing one day and that would be great. But if not, you know, what's interesting is you talked about hopefully one day being able to drink again. And so many firefighters say that are really in a bad way that when a firefighter is in a really bad way there and they open themselves up, they say, okay, I'm ready for help. They're in that Valley. They know, okay, where to help me take me somewhere, whatever. Um, one of the conversations that always happens is someone will say, I don't ever want to not be able to drink again. That's the big concern for them. And I'll say, <laughs> well, you, you can quit for a while. And they'll go, how long right. is a while? And I say, well, two months at least. 
go, and then I'll be able to drink again? I said, well, maybe. <laughs> there would be rules. And Sorry. they're like, what are the rules? Well, the rules would be something like, you're never allowed to drink by yourself. You're only allowed to have X amount of drinks a week. You're not allowed to use, a, it's like a punch card. You're, and you have to follow those rules exactly. because if you can't, you can never drink again. And majority of people that go and try it, it doesn't work because you have a couple pints and you chase six and seven because the first two are so amazing. But there are firefighters <laughs> that are that are able to do it. It takes discipline and it, it's all about enjoying that beer. And um, I refer to it as, you know, people talk about clinical counseling and that people that have never been for clinical counseling ask me, what's it like? And I say, you know, when you go for a beer with your buddy and you're having a beer and you're sharing a story and it's like, you're just so happy to be there in that moment with your friend. And that is what clinical counseling is like when you make a connection to right counseling. Going with your buddies and you have a glass of wine or a beer, that's therapy, as long as you can manage it. But if you can't manage it and it's your coping mechanism, you can't do it. It's funny because as firemen, you know, guys pride themselves and yeah, you know, I worked out three days a week and I, I cycled, I did this and this, and they keep themselves to that very tight, you know, keeping their physical fitness up. But when it comes to drinking, they're like, there's no off limit. There's no like, oh no, I'm going to do three beers. Yeah. I only had three, man. I just, I, I kept it at that level and I was good. No, you don't hear that. You hear, yeah, we had a great night last night. So it's funny how we can be so disciplined in one area and then let it all fall to crap in the other. Um, and I definitely, I remember coming back to work after I was away for, for two months at, uh, at the treatment center. And I was extremely open with my crew. I told everyone, uh, with the exception of the probationer, because I didn't really know him. And, and I figured it's, it's not really appropriate to, to tell him. Um, but when I got back, I did. And I just said, you know, like, I needed that. I needed to be taken away from my routine, my home, all the places where I'd normally go after a shift crack open beers, because that was a routine. And I tried giving it up hundreds of times, tried to limit it and tried all these different it didn't work. And I know AA wouldn't work for me. Um, this program was not AA and we hardly even talked about drinking. That was the weird thing. We talked about mental health. We talked about all these things that you, you talk about, Steve. And it's, it's funny because it's at the end of the day, that's why people drink when they drink to, to feel good is, is mental health issues or, or past trauma. So if we know that that's why you're drinking, then you're not doing it because you're enjoying a beer. Because if you're enjoying the beer, you're not going to drink a Coors Light or some kind of crummy beer, right? You're going to have a nice beer that you enjoy the taste of. So if you notice yourself drinking the cheapest beer, the cheapest booze, it's probably because you're trying to hide something or cover something up or, or get rid of some stress. That was the eye opener for me anyway. And I, I just honestly can't believe how motivated I became once I knew I was loaded onto that program. And I think part of it was, is I knew how much the program cost and that Veterans Affairs was covering it was mind blowing. You know, that's a lot of dough to spend on someone. And I was so fortunate to have that available to me that I was not going to let it go to waste. Most 49 day residential programs for drugs or alcohol, you have to stay the whole time. We have many who have gone through and very successfully. A lot of firefighters have returned back to the job. Amazing employees, you know, very motivated to do what they first joined up to do. Um, it's amazing. You get when when you invest in an employee to help them recover from addiction or mental health issues, uh, you get back a way better, more efficient employee. And here's the coolest thing about that is what organizations don't understand that can't afford to spend that money or can't afford to support their employees is when those employees come back onto the job, just like you're doing, Andrew, they share what they learn. They support others. They lead in a way 
that you can go get a consultant to come in and do that. But not only did you just save a life, you created something within your organization that you can't put a price on. And that's what organizations don't understand about uh, mental health addiction. Um, when you support employees and you get them back, it, it's a it's a win-win for everyone. Totally. Yeah, I, I, I look back to how they treated me after that worst day of my life. Couldn't pay someone to be in the position that they were to help me that day. They did it on their own. Yeah, okay, they're they're an on-duty chief. It's part of their job. It wasn't his job when he got there. Like he he it was from his heart. He he was like, as soon as he saw me, we give each other a hug. Who hugs their chief? <laughs> it, it doesn't happen, right? He saw that that's what I needed then. I was so alone. I felt, I guess the best way to describe it, I felt naked. Like I was just like a complete shambles. And uh, to get a hug, it wasn't like, oh, my chief's hugging me. It's like another human being is hugging me. I need this connection because I feel so alone right now. And I'm in the darkest place in my life. And I wasn't expecting it to happen. You know, 12 hours earlier, I would never imagine being in the parking lot at a hospital hugging my chief, you know, like it's, it's pretty messed up. Um, but it's so amazing to see the flip side of that where the humanity and compassion come out. And that's who we are as firefighters, except we don't do it enough for each other. We do it for strangers every day. We don't do it for each other. That's the messed up part. We're a brotherhood, sisterhood. Let's show it more. Let's, you know, we don't have to get super gushy about it. When someone needs our help, let's show it. I'm laughing at something you said there is like, who knew a white shirt could be emotional and, <laughs> and be a real person? Who knew? Eh? It's pretty funny. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a great story. I love that story because nobody ever tells it like you did. So, and that's what a good white shirt does. It's nice to hear that uh, you got good people filling those roles in your department because that's what they should be doing. They should be out there making that difference. That's their most important part of their job. It's not running ops at a big fire. It's helping their employees when, when they're afraid and they're unsure. And that's why they joined the fire service. That's, that's one of the strongest parts of the fire service that you will never see unless you need it. And people won't hear about it because we don't share those stories. So it's nice to hear, you know, you talk. And now that you're on the other side of it, now that you're in a position of strength, what would you say to the listener who's struggling, the firefighter who is pounding back half a 26er, they're losing their marriage. They're plowing through each day. They're at where you were. What would you say to them right now? Right. It's always hard to give advice in a situation like this because it's so personal to each person and then how they find tools to fix themselves. But you got to make a step, right? For me, my drinking was a problem for the last, you know, 16 years of my life. I couldn't start there. That was my my medication in a sense. So I, so for me, it just started with a clinical counselor. That was before my worst day of my life, six months before. Just finding someone that you can relate to is probably going to take you a bit of time. Even if you're in a good spot is the most important thing you can do as a first responder. Find that connection because you might need it later. If I didn't have that clinical counselor six months before the, the worst day of my life, I don't know where I'd be. I had a lot of other supports, but she was my rock for that kind of issue. Like she was the person I could talk about anything with and get that professional opinion your family members they're going to be a bit biased and be like hey we love you and this and that they're not going to necessarily pull the proper information that you need to focus on to get better so i would say just just have a start uh, clinical counseling for me was huge medication also very huge for me and then you'll start to slowly be more aware of things that make you happy and and taking time to appreciate those things like i have a small business 
And it used to be for me, like, I, I love doing what I do in my small business, but it became like, oh, I got to get this done. I got to finish this project right now. And it's like, no, I don't. I, I could finish this in a couple of weeks. So now I, I pick it up and, and put it down um, around my schedule. So when I do it, I absolutely enjoy it. So find things that you enjoy, surround yourselves and uh, yourself in those things that you enjoy are, are very important. And also surround yourselves around people. We have such a lack of communication with one-on-one communication with each other nowadays. It, it's, it's unbelievable. We we're all on Facebook and Twitter and all that, but when's the last time you hung out with a friend for an hour and went for a hike or went for a kayak, uh, make those priorities in your life. Because the best thing about that too, is your friends, your close friends are going to see changes in you. And if things aren't going well, they're going to ask those questions that no one else at work is going to tell you. People at work might see it and they might say it behind your back. They're not going to come up to you and be like, hey, Andrew, like, are you okay? It's very unusual you'll get someone to do that because they don't want to offend you or they're just unsure how to bring it up. So, so those personal connections are extremely important and uh, we got to make time for them. My daily routine recently has been really focusing on the, the positives uh, in my life. I know it sounds corny and cliche, but I mean, the other day uh, I'm doing a project for my department. Um, it's a volunteer project because I'm, I'm big into honors and awards and, and medals. It's just an interest and passion of mine from the military. And uh, I was driving into the fire hall to meet up with a chief to discuss this project. And I was thinking, I'm driving to the same hall, the same room, like the same foyer as I did on my interview day to get hired here. <laughs> and I went, here I am presenting, you know, a project to the department because it's something that I'm, you know, a subject matter expert in and I'm proud of that. And I have something to offer. And, and just that, this, this feeling came over me like, wow, like, not only am I doing what I love, but I'm actually trying to make the job a little better than I found it. So that, that for me is, is huge. But when it comes to like stressors and, and trying to get, like you said, to start my day, is there something called the five senses drill? And basically what it is, is you, wherever you are, whether you're driving or walking or sitting in a chair, you uh, look for five things that you can see and focus on them and say what they are in your head. Um, you look for, have four things that you can feel. So your butt in your chair, uh, if your hands on like a, a table and, and just really kind of feel what that is and, and try to put a word to it. Uh, three things that you can hear. So maybe a fan in the background or a car going by your house two things that you can smell and one thing that you can taste. And basically what that helps with is it, it, your brain can't focus on all the anxiety and other crap when you're focusing on those, because you're putting yourself in the moment. You're, you're focusing on things that are all around you and your brain. It's really interesting when you do it because you, at least I find a sense of calm. Um, and I don't do it necessarily to the strictness of the, the drill. I might do, you know, three things that I can see and one thing that I can smell and, you know, I, I kind of mix it up, but it, it does the same thing for me. It bring, puts me in a place where I'm present in the moment. And, and that was one thing I couldn't do before. I'd go on these great trips around the world and I'd just be stressed out the whole time of where we're going next. What are we doing next? And I wouldn't appreciate the actual moment of being in Morocco or, or wherever I was. So it, it really improves your quality of life. And it sounds corny, but I wouldn't be here talking about it if it didn't work and it didn't improve my life because there wouldn't be a point. That's a basis for mindfulness, uh, what you just talked about. I mean, it's probably, you can add meditation in there. You can add visualizations in there. Um, one of the things that I do um, just to get the left side of my brain firing first thing in the morning is I brush my teeth with my off hand. So I'm right-handed. I use my left hand when I'm walking. 
I try and touch branches and trees with my off hand so that my fire that left side of my brain. Uh, I use my phone sometimes with my other hand. But mindfulness for me is uh, starting the day with a smile on my face. So that's the first thing I do. Do a gratitude thing. It usually involves my kids and my wife and my family and my job. And, and I tell myself I'm going to have a, a good day. And when I look at myself in the mirror, I'm happy to be who I am. I accept my faults. I accept my wins. I accept myself. The powerful thing about looking at yourself in the mirror is you're looking at yourself. Like you are seeing your faults, your scars, and you're telling yourself, and I do it verbally. I say, you're going to have a good day. It's going to be an awesome day. And I smile and then I leave. And you know what? I almost always have a good day. Not always, but almost. <laughs> the, the one thing that, especially, you know, from my, my life, military and fire, we're not really told to be like, Hey, you did a good job. It's like, no, you did your job. So giving ourselves some praise is, is like almost icky. Um, and we got to remember that that's not normal. We need to hold ourselves to a very high standard because lives depend on it. But in our day-to-day -day life, we're normal people and we need to behave like that and have our ups and downs and, and maybe like, you know what, I did a good job today or I did help someone today and I should be proud of that. Um, you don't need to be gloating about it and putting it on every Facebook message. You need to do it to yourself. You need to put it in your own Facebook up in your head um, so that you do have that sense of you're doing the right thing. You're on the right path. Big U.S. police department. And he's a sergeant there. And he writes me this beautiful message in the morning. And I cried when I read it. Like, I, you don't know, Andrew, when you go out there and tell your story, who it's going to reach. But there are people out there listening and, you know, they're, they're quietly looking for some answer or solution. And you know what, by you sharing your story, you're helping that person. So thank you for sharing your story. And thank you for getting on the right side of mental health and uh, helping fight that stigma out there and uh, everything you do. And you know what, thank you for your service in the Canadian military and as a firefighter. Well, thank you very much for this opportunity, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening and helping us crush the stigma when it comes to mental health. Take care.